Welcome to Under the Fig Tree Podcast with hosts Rev. Dr. Ben Haupt and Rev. Micah Glenn. In today's episode, Ben and Micah sit down with a special guest as they meditate under the fig tree. What's up, what's up, what's up? Welcome back once again to another episode of Under the Fig Tree. I am your host, Rev. Micah Glenn the Director of Recruitment here at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, and of course joined by my highly esteemed co-host, Reverend Dr. Ben Haupt. Every time I do it, I want to say Benjamin, but again, (laughs) once per season and then I'll let it go. How are you today, bro? Once per season? Nah, I think that was just two episodes ago that you said Benjamin. I don't know. So so I I brought it up today, but I didn't say it when I introduced you. So so next season around... Episode six. I'll slide it in there for the season. Not Listen, episode one or the last episode. Listeners there. probably already know that that was one of my uh, uh, nicknames growing up. But uh, yeah, we'll 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 not go there. So, but we flip it, we turn it, and now it's <laughs> it's an incredible nickname. <laughs> well, it's good to be together for another episode. Um, I'm I'm excited to dive right in with our our guest because I. Um, I want to ask a little bit about something before we get into uh, the the theology and the well, this might even be theological too. But uh, before we get into the parable, which we're going to talk about today, uh, we're joined with uh, Dr. Jeff Oshwald, who is a professor of exegetical theology here at Concordia Seminary. Uh, he's been a faculty member since two thousand and two. And before that, he was uh, first a parish pastor in a, 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 at a small parish right close to where I grew up. Uh, I grew up in Hoagland, southeast of Fort Wayne, and he was a pastor in Ossian. And, um, and then he went from where I grew up um, in uh, rural Indiana to be associate professor at China Lutheran Seminary in Taiwan from 1994 to 2002, and uh, every once in a while goes back to Taiwan to, uh, to, to do some guest teaching. So uh, Dr. Oshwald, we're really glad that you're here with us, and um, uh, I, I want to ask you about George McDonald, because <laughs> usually every time that I see you, I, I want to ask about George McDonald. Um, so maybe you can uh, greet the listeners and then tell us a little bit about uh, this, this fascination that you have with George McDonald. Well, thanks both Micah and Ben. It's great to be here uh, under the fig tree with you both. Yeah, George McDonald is an interest uh, Ben and I discovered we had in common. Uh, there are a few others around here. Uh, I didn't know Dr. Nagel, I guess, was hmm. a real McDonald oh, fan. makes sense. Uh, I'm sad I never really got the chance to sit down and, and talk McDonald with him. My own introduction to McDonald, like many of us Americans, came by way of C.S. Lewis, who appreciated McDonald as one of his teachers, a kind of spiritual master, inspiration, uh, and uh, also an influence in him actually coming to believe in the Lord Jesus at all. So uh, McDonald was influential on a wide number of people writing in sort of that late turn of the uh, 19th to 20th century. Um, um, in addition to Lewis, you have Tolkien, Chesterton, uh, Yeats, uh, T.S. Eliot. Um, all these people knew MacDonald's work, if not him personally, and acknowledged uh, the inspiration as a 
pioneer really of Christian literature. Hmm. I actually, after reading a little bit of MacDonald, enjoyed his stories more than I enjoyed Lewis. So hmm. I uh, kind of let Lewis hand me off to MacDonald, and mm -hmm. I've been reading him actually pretty much ever since. So both his nonfiction, more theological works, and uh, his uh, fictional works, both sort of historical novels as well as uh, fantasy literature and the fairy tales for children. But one thing that has always continues to fascinate me is his ability to create a character who is so Christ-like. You yeah. wonder, how does a sinful human being even imagine yeah. a character mm. yeah. uh, so influenced and so much like his Lord and his behavior? Uh, and uh, not only is he a great writer, but I find that dimension very mm. inspiring. Yeah, and how he how he's able to then weave that into a great story. So, um, I mean, he McDonald was himself uh, for a very short time a preacher, mm -hmm. um, but the people that he was called to preach to uh, wouldn't have him uh, really, and and uh, saw him as far too prophetic and so they they sent him packing and uh, oh, no. and he spent the rest of his life uh, really as a as a writer um, and I've, I've spent only a little time with his uh, these unspoken sermons um, that Lewis uh, really kind of uh, did some compilations of and uh, Lewis's uh, work on George MacDonald and his uh, these compilations from the unspoken sermons are just uh, profound uh, theologically uh, but then but then uh, McDonald can turn to story writing and is uh, creating genres I mean Tolkien and Lewis didn't really create the fantasy uh, fairy tale genre actually George McDonald probably did hmm. uh, much more so at least in the for English speakers yeah in a modern sense yeah in fact uh, in the uh, the Tolkien's piece on I can't remember fairy oh, right. on tale? fairy tales. Yeah. yeah, he actually looks at several of McDonald's pieces and says, "Is this a fairy tale or not?" According to his definition. But, uh, but yeah, one of the reasons McDonald was removed from his pulpit was uh, his people thought he was too influenced by German theology. <laughs> That's how they put it. So, oh, what worst things scallion. that you can be uh, right yeah. accused of. So. There is also a connection with Luther that takes you a while to see. Um, if you're just beginning to read MacDonald, you'll find some things that probably come across as sort of offensive even. Hmm. Uh, but when you put him back in the context of his day, realizing what he's reacting against, uh, you uh, slowly begin to realize how, how well he understood uh, not just Luther, but really the gospel. Yeah. We were just talking uh, just before we started recording the podcast that in Luther's works, uh, on in the volume on uh, Luther's hymns, uh, the the uh, editors used George MacDonald's translation of Luther's hymns. Uh, MacDonald was one of the first translators of Luth of these really poems that Luther had written, um, and did uh, quite an excellent job of uh, translating them. They're they're fun to read because. They're the hymns that we know, but but they're totally different mm -hmm. from what, what's in the hymnal. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, comments MacDonald made was people criticized him that the rhymes weren't very nice. And he said, if you think my rhymes are bad, look at the German. <laughs> so, uh, 
So yeah, he uh, he passed that one back to Luther. And, nice. Uh, but yeah, it's very refreshing to read a familiar hymn in a different translation. Yeah. And, uh, there's, I think, something very homey or uh, homely, as MacDonald would say, about these. They just feel like something uh, Luther might have shared with you across the table, uh, not something you'd hear in a big uh, cathedral, perhaps. So I'd encourage everyone to take a look at those. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's a part of the fun of being at the seminary is uh, stumbling across these, these great little connections of uh, readings, books that, uh, that other brothers and sisters in Christ have found really helpful. Um, and, uh, and as C.S. Lewis says, what, you too? Um, that's kind of uh, how Lewis defines friendship, when somebody can say, oh, you, you know that too? Um, and, and there's just some wonderful things that happen at the seminary when we find out, oh, you, you, you like to read that too. So that's, that's great. That's fantastic. Um, I hope our, our listeners do check out George MacDonald. But we're really here to talk about uh, a parable. Yes, we are. And so in the series, uh, well, maybe to your joy or maybe not to your joy, this is the last parable of this series. We're, we're wrapping it up next week, but in a much different way. Uh, but this is the last parable that we've isolated. Uh, if you've been following along and you're wondering why we've picked or why I've picked the different parables we did. So I, I picked one that was very familiar with all of us, the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Just to get our feet wet and just talking about parables. And then I picked ones that were exclusive to each gospel, which which brings us to, at least in my opinion, and maybe this will be, you know, dismembered, my confusion by this parable. Uh, but I, whenever it comes up in the pericope, I let it be read, and then I, I move on, and I preach one of the other texts, even if they're terrible, because I don't want to preach this one, because I don't quite get it. But but uh, what we're speaking of is what's often labeled, or at least in my uh, ESV Bible, is the parable of the dishonest manager. Now, uh, if you're ever reading your Bible and you come across these uh, headings for different sections, just know that they're all completely made up. Uh, by interpreters, they're usually helpful, especially for finding your place. But nonetheless, it could the guy could be dishonest. He is called dishonest, but he could be this parable could potentially be called something else. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, without further ado, because at least for me, it's going to take some time to wrap my mind around this parable in particular. Uh, let's read, and this is Luke chapter sixteen, beginning at verse one. If you're following along in your Bible. All right, so from the ESV, Luke 16, Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from, my, from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debts one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will, you, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be Thanks to God. Be Thanks to be to God. <clears throat> so in first reading, and reading and reading and reading, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to place Jesus, where does Jesus fit in the parable, right? Because he's got to be in there somewhere, at least according to what I think about parables. And so the rich man, there's a, the rich man, and then there's the master. Are, are those the same? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I just now there are a couple of challenging plays on words here that you see more clearly if you're looking at Greek than English. Mm -hmm. English tries to make it easier to follow. So the same word translates master and lord. Right. One of the questions about this parable is sort of when does it end? When are we not talking about the story anymore and when is Jesus just giving us uh his word? And the switch from the master in the parable to the Lord telling the parable is very difficult to detect. So mm. that's why I hesitated before answering your question there. Uh, but yes, uh, in the parable, they're the same person. So that at least begins to establish some context. And then <clears throat> we have this, this manager who's not been doing his job properly. He's about to lose his position and... For whatever reason, he doesn't seem to have any other earthly skills whatsoever. So if he loses this job, he's not only useless to the world, but useless to himself. So he's trying to figure out his life. And he does this thing uh, that he's commended for. Now, I'm not quite sure if it ends up being beneficial in his relationship to the master or just with other people. So he's not homeless. But, but he begins to cut his the debts people owe. And I was reading a commentary, and I think they did a good thing, because it would be very easy to do this. See, he's, he's cutting a percentage off of each of the debts, and it, it could be a move to say he's cutting out his commission, so at least he's repaying his master. But nothing in the text suggests this. Nothing in the text explicitly suggests that. So one of the challenges <laughs> with this parable is to try to figure out what is the context? What's the story here that we're supposed to be imagining? And of course, we do business very differently today from the way it was done in the first century. Sure. And we get very uncomfortable, or at least we get uncertain of ourselves. We lose a little bit of our confidence when we're drawing in things from outside the text to help us understand the text. And that's a good thing. We never want to trust that as much as we trust the things that are clearly in the text. Mm -hmm. But I think this is one of the cases where we really have to appeal to some of that material to make sense of a very difficult parable. Sure. Now, I'm going to back up just a second. I don't know when you started this series if you talked about what is a parable or not, but the definition I like to use in, in uh, discussing parables ends with saying 
They're written in such a way that they leave you thinking about them when you walk away, and they tease the mind into active thought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So parables are meant to get us asking questions. And if people leave a sermon or a class or a discussion about a parable still saying, i got to think about this some more, then I think that's a sign the parable has done its work, or it is doing its work on us. Yep. Now, back to your initial questions about what should we even call this. Part of the question is, of course, who is the main character here? And in this case, I agree that it is this manager or steward. And depending on which way you want to translate that, either is fine. You see dishonest manager is a little more contemporary unjust steward. Uh, again, the, the same Greek word for unjust or unrighteous is dishonest, so yep. it can kind of go either way. But the first question I think you want to try to establish is, what gives him that name? Because he's referred to that way by Jesus as he's telling the story, uh, or by the master in the story, depending on how you read verse 9. So there's something about him that is dishonest, but what is that? Uh, I think if you read carefully, the only clear charge that's brought against him is something that happens before the parable even begins. He's accused of wasting the owner's, the rich man's property. Now the manager, I'll, we'll just call him that for today, never challenges that accusation. Hmm. It's never proven but he never defends himself against it either. So you get the sense that there's probably some truth to that. Hmm. He was living a wasteful life. He wasn't being the right kind of manager, and so he loses his position. Now the questions really begin, though, with what was that position? And I don't, I don't know if you want to follow that up with question or you want me to just keep talking. You're going to have to turn my mic off to get me to stop here. So. <laughs> no, this is exactly why we have you on the podcast, <laughs> exactly. is, to, is to say... Um, we brought the heavy hitter for the heavy parable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So okay. this is exactly... this is, And what we're trying to do here is to help our listeners to understand what it would be like to come into the classroom um, where they've maybe read through the parable, they've done some, some preparation... But they're saying, you know, help us understand yeah. what this is all about. So well, and keep going. Preachers too. I mean, it looks like Jesus is praising dishonesty. Right, right. And that's what bothers everybody. And so you have to think, well, there's, that can't be right. How do we explain this? How do we work with it? That's just what you were saying before, Micah. Yeah, and that's and which is exactly what it comes down to. You look down, and I've we you know, if you if you come to the seminary study on campus in in one of our traditional residential programs. You'll go to class. Uh, somebody like Dr. Oswald will pre will give a great lesson. And even if it's not on parables, you'll leave satisfied, but scratching your head. And it, it should be that way because we're all students when we get here. And then you'll go to lunch. And for whatever time you're, you're, you have to sit around the lunch table, you and your friends will most likely discuss the lesson, maybe argue a little bit, there's a iron sharpens iron, uh, and sometimes you'll come to a resolution, but, but then sometimes there's this parable of a dishonest manager, and your classmate will say something like, man, you're kind of a nerd, and that sounds good, but I, I don't think that's the answer. And, and so like even, 
even even if the dishonest thing uh, is happen is is the mismanagement, which makes total sense based upon the way the text moves. Even then, it seems like Jesus is. It's not the the cutting the debt. It's it's the dishonesty that Jesus is saying, make friends with unrighteous people so that they'll welcome you in their house. Oh, what? Like this is it just especially for us in in the twenty first century it seems not not that you shouldn't go to unrighteous people to to preach the gospel, but but not to to dwell with them in the way that you can if and being accepted that way it, so it just creates so many more questions for me the deeper we get in but again I have faith that we're gonna have a, a deep resolution. Yeah, let's work our way toward that. Uh, I actually think that's one of the most beautiful uh, lines in the whole passage uh, that we just heard, but only if you know what it means. Sure. Mm. Uh, So let's go back a little bit to what's the situation we have to picture here. Now, let me mention, well, this is a very controversial parable. You've had all kinds of theories about how to read it from ancient days until modern times. Yep. Uh, if you look at medieval approaches, uh, I, uh, you have one guy who's saying the steward is Paul, mm-hmm. another guy saying the steward is the devil. So you can <laughs> already see there's a lot of confusion yeah. about how to read this. Uh, I pulled out an article from uh, Eugene Peterson. Some of you may know that name. Uh, he classes this with gospel rascals. Hmm. Now, you a little bit of humor, uh, I think is appropriate here. I actually think this main character is a bit of a comedian himself. That's what he could have done if he didn't want to dig. Uh, But again, I'm going to focus on two approaches that I think our hearers are probably most likely to encounter. Mm -hmm. And they both have merits and uh, both can be turned to. I'll explain why I favor one rather than the other. Uh, But let's start like every professor does with the one he doesn't like. <laughs> now, I want to say I don't like it. It just it hasn't persuaded me as much as another approach. And that's the approach you'll see in uh, Art Just's commentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, he's uh, relying uh, on some work by Kenneth Bailey there, which, of course, does look carefully at the cultural uh, situation, but looks mostly at this as a parable and how will it work. And according to that approach, uh, the unjust manager, the dishonest manager, is not really the main character. The main point of the parable is about the mercy of God. And it comes pretty close. This is a bit of a caricaturization of it, uh, oversimplification, but it comes pretty close to the idea uh, that it's easier to ask for mercy than it is to ask for permission. Mm-hmm. So you uh, have the acknowledgement that what he does with changing the accounts is something he should not have done, but he does it knowing that his master is merciful, and he, uh, I think Art literally says, he, he banks on that. Hmm. So he counts on the nature of the master, and that's in the end and what he's being praised for. He knows the character of his master, He makes a decision, he follows it through, Um, he sort of ensures a future for himself, 
which is guaranteed by the mercy of his master. And you can already begin to see how you could get a, a good, clear gospel message out of reading the parable that way. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I wouldn't, as I've said, not having a clear understanding of this parable, I wouldn't argue against it fully. Um, but so this is where I would struggle with that approach. Uh, and and I, I'll fully admit that I didn't read Greek before now, but he's, he's, it doesn't say, at least in English, that the master has mercy or forgives the servant. He commends him, but commending somebody for their actions, and be like, you know what? You didn't do bad for yourself, and the parable could cut off, but you still owe me money. You're going to jail. Like, it, it could go that way without clear mercy or forgiveness. And reading the parable... If there was any mercy in the parable, it would be from the manager to the people who owed, not from the rich man master to the manager. Well, and as I'm reading it, I don't, I don't read. Um, if we're going with that reading, I, I don't see any indication in the text before it says that the master commended the the manager. I don't see any indication in the text that the the manager sees his sees his uh his master as merciful he it almost seems to me like he's really afraid of him he's <laughs> afraid of him he's going to lose his job and so m might's well um make some good for himself while he still has a little bit of power before he has no power at all and then the the master commending him almost in my reading kind of comes as a surprise uh, yeah i think so uh, and would certainly to the hearers of the parable that this is where it ends. They would not be expecting that. Uh, mm. Now, parables often have a kind of twist like that, uh, so that's not unusual for a parable at all. Uh, but I agree with both of you that as I read the parable, uh, for one, I do see the manager as the main character. Yeah. He's the one who drives the action through most of the scenes. Secondly, there's no real talk about mercy, and the idea that the manager should have been punished, was even liable for punishment for what he does with the accounts, is an assumption that's not in the, in the text. Right. So with this way of reading it, too, you're making some assumptions, you're, you're filling in the gaps with some outside material, that he could have been thrown into prison uh, the man whose material he was seen to still be wasting, his uh, profits and so on, could have punished him legally, but he doesn't. He shows mercy and says, uh, what a clever guy. Now, we don't want you to be dishonest, Jesus would be saying, but we want you to be smart. Uh, we want you to think about your situation and, and make decisions based on who you know your judge to be. Uh, so again, there's some some things to commend that approach, uh, but there's another way of looking at it that I think fits much better with all the details of the text, and then where the text goes from there. Before we go to that, I I was just um, we we talked earlier with uh, another guest about the um, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Yeah, um, and I wonder if this is if this reading that you've just presented that we've just kind of said. Mm, it maybe, but maybe not. I wonder if it's almost a, a conflation or a mixing of those two where 
um, it's it's pretty clear that the point of the the unforgiving servant is the the master is merciful, and the problem is that the the manager the the lower guy isn't, um, and the idea is that he he should have been more merciful. And I wonder if this this first reading that you've laid out kind of mixes those two parables, or at least reads into this parable some of the the assumptions of the the other parable. Yeah, I agree with that. I I think it's it's not uh, really taking full advantage of the material you have in this parable, and you end up with a good gospel message. But you still leave a lot of unanswered questions about why did Jesus tell the story this way? Yeah. If he wasn't going to use these details, why even bring them in? So the other approach, uh, I credit uh to Joseph Fitzmaier. This is in his Anchor Bible Commentary on Luke, and there's a lot of background information that I don't think we need to go into, but I mention it just because he's, he's done his work here. He's uh, you know, looked into, he's even read receipts and business transactions from the first century. So uh, these are all good scholars we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Why this would appeal to me, uh, let me just mention something that might sound a little strange for an exegetical professor to say. Um, By the way, a lot of people don't know what that word means, Uh, but we're the guys who are supposed to be interpreting the Bible. Uh, So our classes are largely about Bible. Most of them are book courses. Uh, I talk about this parable both in a course on Luke, which puts it in its context in the whole gospel, and on a course I do sometimes on parables. So we look at it over against other parables, which is also helpful. One approach to, to looking at a difficult text is sort of like attempting to solve an algebra equation, where you have an unknown or even two unknowns, and you say, what if I take it this way? How will the text read? Where will I end up? What's the message I get if I take it this way? And so you can look at testing these uh, different approaches along those lines and seeing what benefit does it give me? Does it open up the parable to me? Does it explain the difficult details? Uh, Does it point me in a right direction? And uh, as Micah already uh, said, that right direction should be pointing us to Jesus. Uh, So the other situation we imagine here is a first century, first century business kind of situation where you often had a person who owned either property or a business concern but lived at some distance from that. Mm. So maybe uh, he lives in Jerusalem and the property is out in the country. Uh, maybe we're talking about a Roman person who has property around the Mediterranean world. But these... Uh, business men like this, so like the rich man, uh, would often entrust these businesses to slaves. Now, the slave survived by making the business a going concern, a profitable business. And he both benefited the master by doing that and (coughs) created his own income. So that's a <clears throat> excuse me, a pretty good stimulus, right, for uh, doing good at your job is that your income depends on it, much yeah. like our sales situation today. 
Now, again, Fitzmaier develops this in a lot more detail. There were, uh, if you've read the Bible much at all, you know there are some strong statements about lending money to people and making interest on things you lend. So uh, carrying out business in the biblical world was not a very easy thing. Uh, what did you do if you needed more capital? Uh, where did you go? And things like that. So uh, if we picture that kind of situation, here we have this particular manager entrusted with a business concern, which seems sort of like a some sort of commodities exchange or a wholesaler or something like that. And word comes back to the owner of the whole business that this manager is wasting his money. Uh, he's not getting the profits he should. There's mismanagement. Um, you know, we see these stories uh, on the news every day in our own time. So, right. so he calls in the guy and says, look, you're done. I want to see the books, turn them in, you know, bring everything up to date, turn in the books, and then you're done. That's where the parable begins. And now the guys say, what am I going to do? And this is where there's a little bit of humor, I think. Uh, I'm uh, too proud <laughs> to beg, and I'm not strong enough to, to dig. dig. Uh, what's left? You know? So I'm a businessman. I, I can't go out and look for manual labor. Uh, and I'm too proud. I'm not going to start asking friends for money. So what does he do? Now, this is the controversial point. Uh, Micah, you already said you're not quite convinced on this, so I'm going to try one more time. If the situation is that this man is making his livelihood by the profit he makes on these transactions, if it's true that in the ancient world, uh, retail markup can be at least 100%, right? sometimes even more. Sure. Uh, if what he's doing is cutting his profits so that he's making friends with these accounts, these debtors, these um, clients, let's say customers of the owner, and if they know that's what he's doing, then they're going to think this is a great deal, right? He's essentially giving them the stuff at wholesale. Right. Mm -hmm. So he cuts his profits. Now, how does that affect the owner? The owner's not out anything. Right. In fact, he has customers who are now extremely happy that they've done business with him. Who loses? Well, the manager loses the money he would have gained that might have gotten him through a, you know, a few more months of unemployment. But in exchange for that, he's made some friends that he hopes, at least, will return that kind of generosity when he needs it. If that's the situation you imagine, you can see how the pieces start to fall into place. So why would the owner praise this man? Well, he didn't lose his cool, right? Right. He accurately assessed the situation, even though he does it with a little bit of sarcasm. Mm -hmm. He makes a decision that addresses the situation properly, and then the plan succeeds. And the master has to uh, say uh, he did a great job, given his situation. Uh, so he gets punished for his dishonesty by losing his job. But in response to that, he gives up what would have looked like immediate short-term gain for something much longer. Now, if we uh, 
look then in that light at what we see in verse 9. Well, first of all, what he's praised for is also a little bit confusing. Uh, shrewdness isn't necessarily a positive quality today, especially in Christian circles. Sure. But the way this word tends to be used in the gospel <clears throat> is that awareness of the situation you live in and making appropriate decisions and acting wisely in light of that. So we'll come back to that in just a moment. But it's, uh, it's not deceitfulness. Uh, it's that kind of clear-headed thinking that knows the situation he's in and does what needs to be done. Well, and, and again, this is, this is, again, if you're thinking about ministry, and especially pastoral ministry, becoming a theologian, and a, a practicing theologian. These are the types of discussions you want to be having uh, with many people. And I did, I did take the parables of our Lord with Dr. Oswald in my, I took it in my last year of seminary. Lesson, guys, the classes you really want to pay attention to and really get the most of, take in your first two years of seminary. Because when you come back after vicarage, you're just, you're not just getting by, but you're just getting by so you can become a pastor someday. But the, the way you framed it up, and again, th this is helpful, and, and this is why we need the exegesis in our church, just because you, you frame things up so nicely. The dishonesty isn't the shrewdness. Right. The dishonesty is what got him into trouble. And so if, if what he's doing is shrewd but not dishonest, and now, again, I, I wasn't saying it can't be that because I didn't believe it. I was just saying that because, you know, trying to struggle to understand the parable. But, but again, if it's shrewdness, not dishonesty, now being praised for it, takes on much different picture and frame for us to be able to begin to embrace this parable because I I'm starting to at least to think I know where you're going and it feels so much better <laughs> yeah and this is a, a challenge in in the classes I teach I'm sure it's the same for you Ben in your classes you don't want students saying this must be right because the professor said it sure you want students saying, this is right because it works. Yep. Mm -hmm. I mean, this helps me understand the Bible. Mm -hmm. This lets me see what Jesus is teaching here in a way that makes sense for me today, too. Yep. Um, and that's what I want to keep coming back to. Does it work? Uh, with that in mind, let's look at verse 9. It, just for our listeners, yeah. when, and, um, when, when we say, does it work, understand that we're saying, is it faithful? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> does it does, it, does yeah. it work? Does it make sense of all the details of yeah, the yeah. text? Yeah. yeah, in a way that's faithful to the message of Scripture, right. especially right. its testimony about who Jesus is. Right. And that's the problem we started with, right? Exactly. Jesus doesn't say, be dishonest if you can get away with it, or be <laughs> dishonest if you can still get saved. Right. Uh, so what would Jesus here be saying? Now, verse 9 has its own sort of problems, right? Uh, you get a reference there. Um, let me find it. Uh, to uh, this. When you read it, was it unrighteous mammon or what? Unrighteous wealth. wealth unrighteous ESP. wealth. Yep. Okay. And uh, I was trying to remember. So this is uh, wealth that's unrighteous. Now, just like with the manager, what would make this money unrighteous, this wealth? Now, one of the challenges of reading Luke is that when money is talked about in Luke's gospel, it may mean more, but it always means at least money. 
I mean, we're really talking about money. Yeah. The, the stuff in your back pocket or yep. the stuff you wish you had in your back pocket. <laughs> and so we're talking about the kind of wealth that's used in human transactions. What makes that unrighteous? It's not unrighteous in and of itself. Otherwise, the people of God could never use money at all. We'd have to just say, we'll barter or something else, but we can't be involved in this. Right. But who hasn't pulled a, a 20 out of his billfold or a 5, if you're a seminary professor? <laughs> right. uh, or a 1 and if said, you're a student. I wonder where this has been. Yeah. Oh. I wonder what transactions this money in my pocket has been part of. Yeah. And I have no confidence whatsoever that it's only gone from believer to offering plate to seminary and, and never been involved in transactions that are unrighteous in the fullest possible sense. Right? People get hurt by money. People's lives get destroyed by money. And if the money in my pocket is part of that, why do I even want anything to do with it? Right. But if even this kind of money with all its sort of tainted history and background, you can use for good purposes, then you're not making friends of unrighteous people, but you're using unrighteous money to make friends who will welcome you. What are the eternal habitations? I don't know. It's mm. a beautiful picture, and it's clearly a picture of what life uh, together in the kingdom, the eternal kingdom, will be like when we're not dealing with unrighteous anything, mm. especially money. Uh, so you begin to slowly slide out of this parable into the application in the lives of the hearers as you work from verse 8 into verse 9, and then uh, continue still sort of with one foot in the parable and one foot in the world we live in, uh, talking about how do you use your possessions? Right. What's mm -hmm. true wealth? What's not? What belongs to you? What are you just using as a manager? Remember, the, the steward, the manager, didn't actually own any of this. He was just managing it for the person who did. And you already begin to see all kinds of things suggesting themselves. Yeah. Well, and so, again, none of these parables exist in vacuums. Uh, now, now, if we were to move beyond the parable in this chapter of Luke, do, does verse 18 come out of a vacuum? Maybe. But, <laughs> but uh, it, it, so before this parable, there's the parable of the lost coin, something, mm -hmm. mammon. Then there's the parable of the prodigal son, which is about a lost boy consumed with mammon, the, the possessions of this world. And then you get this parable, and then you get this... Uh, this dialogue from Jesus to the Pharisees about the kingdom of God and how it relates to love for mammon, right. and and so so in the well, in the long and then, and then you get the rich man and Lazarus right right um, which is also about riches it, it, and and so like when when I'm going to this parable it's not that I'm afraid of it I just I just I typically maybe now I'm brave enough to preach it uh, or I'll ask you to to feed me my lines when I get into the pulpit. But, but that, that's all I was beginning the, the, the podcast today. Don't be afraid to approach any section of God's word. And like we've said a couple of times when we we're talking about these parables, when you walk away scratching your head, don't run away from the parable, read it again, yeah. and then read it again, and then read it again. And when you think you've gotten the hang of it, read it again, because something else is going to jump off the page. But, 
But that's what I would have basically assumed to some extent. Again, the characters of the parable still throw me a little bit, even after this really great dialogue. Uh, but, but it comes to this, this thing. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and the possessions of this world. A, because God has created them all, because nothing really belongs to us. At the grand, in the grand scheme of life and world, no matter how materialistic you are, no how much money you amass, a, the dollar is literally made up. I don't want to break anybody's heart, but it's made up. It's based upon gold, hidden, and perceived value of America. But even if you are able to leave it for generations, at some point it goes away. Nothing in this world is eternal. It's all temporal. But the kingdom of God is not. So which one do you love more? Uh, and I'm, 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 I'm feeling like that's where you're heading. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> now, uh, Ben had mentioned a moment ago, kind of reading this parable together with the unforgiving servant from Matthew. Yep. But if you read it as part of that series that Micah just outlined for us, especially think for a moment about this parable over against the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. This unjust manager, uh, dishonest manager, is, I think, sort of the, almost the anti-type of the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. So the son starts out with everything. Yeah. And what's he do? He takes his inheritance and squanders it. This man starts as a slave. There's nothing that's really his own, but he gives up what could have been his own to make uh, this uh, sort of friendship work so Mm -hmm. that everyone ends up being sort of pleased and happy with the outcome except him who goes away with an empty pocket. Hmm. Uh, so to get back to your point, what would you not sacrifice to gain this kingdom for yourself or for somebody else? The picture I end up with after this parable, every time I read it, is will there be someone when I die and rise again who will be waiting there and saying, I just want to thank you because I wouldn't be here if it weren't at least in part for something you said or did for me. Mm. That's what I think it means to be welcomed in the, the eternal habitations. Mm. Mm-hmm. So this dishonest man knew he was dishonest, knew he had squandered so much that the owner had entrusted him with. He yet sacrifices what really are, you said, temporal, trivial, transient kind of benefits so that these people, these clients, would continue to do business with his owner, that these people would know, uh, here's the one you want to transact your business with. Right. Uh, And if you carry that over into sort of our world, the real spiritual world, uh, again, we're, we're still thinking money, but we're not thinking just money. What can I give up in terms of short-term personal gain that might help someone else either strengthen or even find that connection to the one that I serve? And then someday uh, we could have the joy of celebrating that together. Um, so I, good. I, I, so I know we're, we're getting toward the, the end of the parable and we're... Um, we're, we're starting to think about what does this mean for, for us? Mm-hmm. But there's a nagging question that I have, um, and, it, and it goes all the way back to the beginning. Um, so 
let me set it up this way. I think most of the time when we read the parables, we're trying to figure out uh, in the story, where's Jesus, where's the Father, and where am I? And I maybe that's the problem with how this, <laughs> this parable is often read, because I think my if my hunch is right, that the rich man is not God or or uh, Jesus or anybody the this parable is um is, is it specifically not trying to say who the rich man is um and you've made this point i guess a couple of times that the, this is a parable about the the manager he's the 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 one in the story uh Jesus even says uh he kind of talks through the whole parable and then refers to this guy as one who is uh, what uh, not of the not of the light, or uh, I mean, basically not a child of God, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, so, so what? Uh, what? What's your take on that? Um, who is the okay. the rich man in the parable? Uh, first of all, it can be very interesting to read a parable you know very well one that you've always identified with a particular character in the parable, read it in a different way and say, what if I read this thinking of myself as this other character? So we all hear parables as if one character is probably going to be the one that's going to teach me my lesson, the one I need. So you can do that, but in this parable, I would still say I think the owner, the rich man, is the Lord. Okay. Because of that sort of play on words mm. at the end. Right, mm -hmm. right. Now, how might that look for me? Uh, I don't think the rich man is the father and the manager is Jesus. That really doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. at all. Right. Um, so I might ask you, Ben, where is Jesus or Micah? Uh, that is, ask Ben or Micah. <laughs> Where is Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son? Mm. <laughs> yeah, he's the third brother, right? Right. He's the one who should have been there. Right, yeah, right. Not squandered his inheritance and not been unwelcoming to the brother when he comes home and the father welcomes him into the household. So in that parable, you don't have a clear Jesus f figure. Right. Sometimes have... I hear people try to make the father into Jesus, but that doesn't. No, the father is the father, sense. right? Yeah. <laughs> and the fatted calf that that doesn't work either for me. <laughs> right, it just right. it doesn't make sense of the story. Um, so coming back to this parable, I th this is one that I can't help but read, where the dishonest manager is me mm -hmm. right and there's even a little bit of a a personal play on words here um, one etymology of my last name oshwald is oikonomos it's the mm. leader of a house uh the ruler of a house a steward sure. so maybe i have a german ancestor who was actually a steward hopefully an honest one but <laughs> but in any case I serve a Lord, and I almost said this already just a moment ago, but he's entrusted me with untold riches, mm. and I know I've been wasteful. 
I can't fight that charge. If it's brought up against me, I have no defense. What can I do? I can look at the situation I'm in now. I can use what I still have at my disposal, all the, everything from my wealth to my intellect to my life, all my gifts and talents, and I can ask, how can I use those in a way that helps connect other people to God? Because mm. they're, all, they're all doing business with the rich man. Yeah. He's the owner. Uh, and so how can I be a, a manager for him in a way that cements relationships with him, not with me, but with him, uh, and then leads to eternal celebration for all of us? That, that's how I, where I see this parable mm. going. That one provides <clears throat> a, a difficult reading, not because it's unacceptable, but because it's it's so bold-faced law in my face that no matter you, again the dishonest, he just wasn't doing what he's supposed to be doing, and you you don't don't want to consider yourself the dishonest manager, but when you're faced with the law, you have no where to run because you know we're not all stewards and managers but you know with what we've been given to God have we all fumbled it well well yeah of course i have but th- we, we we and we didn't talk about this much in the last episode we were talking about uh these little rapid fire uh parables in Mark's gospel of uh the seed that's sown and then the mustard seed and the the mustard seed we we talked about contextually it becomes transformative in, or transformed in the sense that mustard trees may have been a pest, but in this parable, they become something that people come to from the outside in. Uh, and and now that we're we're wrestling with this parable and we're talking about it, it goes from this dishonest manager to this shrewd businessman for for his sake, but also for the sake of others. And it connects those others back to the rich man master. This reality that. Uh, in the gospel, well, not in the gospel, but the gospel itself is transformative. Well, well, God's word is transformative, not just the gospel, also the law is transformative for us in our lives, but in his word in its entirety, changes who we are when we're brought into it. Uh, if, if, I, if I ever were to be bold enough to preach this, this, this parable, I, I think that would have to be something I'd bring into it, that this guy starts one way, by the faculties that are given to him by God becomes something else when he's realized with his mortality in this world. Um, and, and, and then he, he's, because of that, he's brought into something different. It's, it's still really challenging. It is. And <laughs> I want to, again, sort of just encourage people not to uh, interrupt the parable as it's working on us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By giving yeah. an easy answer to it too quick. Mm-hmm. Now I'm sitting here with a homiletician, and uh, you know, so I got to be careful what I say. Uh, no, I. Uh, we want our sermons to end with the proclamation of the gospel. That's why we're there. Yeah. We're not there to judge and condemn people. Period, and leave them there. No. But sometimes parables do that. And that's a reminder to us that sometimes this sort of bitter medicine of the law needs a little more time to work on us than we think. Mm. And if you look at the way this parable starts to conclude by saying, 
Well, the owner, the rich man, knew that this was a little bit dishonest, but he said, hey, it was a smart thing to do in this situation. It's all okay. Then we've kept the parable from making us think, what's the situation I'm in? Mm -hmm. And I think that's why Jesus says such a strong word of caution to his own children, right? The children of light. You need to learn a lesson here. Is there a reckoning coming for you? Mm. Is there judgment coming? Or have you been told, it's all okay because God loves you, so don't worry about that. Don't even think about that. So, you know, you've, you've got some time. Uh, what's, the, what's the rich man say? Uh, <laughs> uh, the rich man with his barns, uh, it's eat, drink, and be merry. Right, right. right. Um, We've got the good life here. God has blessed us. Uh, he wants us to enjoy it. We'll just take care of it. And do I need to worry about the people who are still facing these huge unpaid accounts? Right. Um, you know, do I or do I help them manage that in the sense of uh, how do you learn what this debt really means to you, mm. and how do you get out from under such an incredible debt? Um, so that's why I would be. Uh, careful about uh, trying to force the gospel to a sort of quick and happy, I mean, force the parable to a kind of quick and happy gospel ending so that people leave the church feeling, okay, I, it's good after all, and uh, let's go home and have dinner. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, so here you get into uh, a little and a lot. You get into what's truly yours and what's truly not. Uh, what has lasting value, what doesn't. Uh, you get into Pharisees who are really sort of models of pious people, mm -hmm. and yet they're lovers of money. Well, that should give us all a pause, right, to stop and think. Uh, are we lovers of money, or are we lovers of something with much greater value? Who are we serving? Mm. Uh, you can't have two masters, so don't kid yourself. Um, you know, wh where do you really uh, put your trust when it comes down uh, to that final uh, climax, that uh, moment of crisis? What are you going to turn to? Well, and I think that um, your your point exactly with the, the parable continuing to work on us and to, to not let hearers off too easily uh, with kind of making the, the parable, kind of rounding off the edges, uh, so to speak, I think is actually exactly the homiletical wisdom that we're trying to give our preachers as we as we are teaching them preaching is to not be too formulaic in your preaching. Uh, don't don't do seven minutes of law and eight <laughs> minutes of gospel so that they can they can time it and predict it and know. Oh, good, uh, the pastor's you know kind of done with the law section and now I can now I can get feeling good about myself again. Right. And and ultimately, Walter's Walter's view on this is because sometimes we are hardened in our own sin, and uh, when when a when someone is hardened in their sin. Um, the only thing that they that they really need is the law, um, mm -hmm. to awaken them to the near need for a savior, um, and those who are already trusting in their Lord and aren't um, uh, making money their master, 
then they're, they probably hear uh, the gospel in this and they just happily kind of go on and they keep on giving away their stuff. And, uh, but most of the time, we, we, all, we all need to hear the law uh, again. So, I mean, I think this is, this is actually really helpful to read through this parable and, and to think about how Jesus is um, preaching a law that, that really does open his ears, hears, uh, open his ear, hearers' ears up to the word of God so that they don't uh, just kind of drift off to sleep and, um, and, and stop thinking about the, the judgment that's coming or their neighbor uh, or, or his word. Well, taking on a parable like this is also just, I think, a good exercise for reading God's word in general. Because, I mean, you could flip to the Old Testament and find texts that are equally challenging when you, you think you see something that it should play out a certain way. And then God steps in and does something that feels contrary to yeah. who we think he yeah. is as this fluffy, loving father who always embraces his creation as they are, but he hardens people's hearts. And the hardening of that heart leads to them being swallowed up by the Red Sea and things like that. So, it, it, again, when you come to a difficult text, you want to resolve it quickly. You want to get to the gospel. And sometimes the, the thing that's preventing you from seeing what, what is the gospel in the text is, is your own heart and heart. <laughs> but God is always calling us back to himself Indeed. and trying to... Um, uh, well, awaken us to our own hard hardness of heart, so that um, so that he can save us. So, um, one thing that we didn't do at the beginning of this podcast, oh, yeah. probably because <laughs> I started off in my my zeal for George McDonald, we yeah. didn't ask you, uh, Jeff, how you got into the ministry. So maybe we'll pair uh, what we typically do at the at the beginning, also up with another question at the end. So. I'll, I'll pose two questions to you. First is, how did you get into the, the pastoral ministry in the first place? And then uh, maybe that leads right into the question that we always finish with, which is, what kind of closing advice would you give to someone who's maybe wrestling with this question, should I come to seminary or not? My father was not a pastor. Uh, I feel rather proud that I can say, uh, with origin of Alexandria, that my first Bible teacher was my father, uh, but he wasn't a pastor. Uh, he was a very faithful uh, member of the church. I grew up in the Missouri Synod. Uh, he was always quite active, uh, especially as elder, school board, things like that. Uh, but he was an agronomist, so uh, studied soils. And uh, there was an appreciation of creation that was mixed with an even greater appreciation for God's Word that I think really shaped me uh, in terms of all sorts of ways that I think about God and, and the world. I did have very good pastors, and I would have to say between my parents and my pastors, uh, that's what started to point me in the direction of even thinking about seminary. When I was in high school, I had sort of narrowed my choices down to two real possibilities, two things I thought I would love to do with my life. Uh, one was to be a medical doctor, one was to be a pastor. When it came time to finally say, you've got to go one way or the other, I thought, what's worth investing my whole life in? I know either one of these careers is going to take everything I've got and then some. 
what will I think uh, give the the best sort of return on that investment? Mm. What's what's the thing that I will, you know, in those sort of dark nights, those moments of doubt, why am I doing this? What's my life about? What will give me the most reassurance that this was worth it? Wow. And I decided that had to be something with eternal value, not something with temporary value. And that's not to say we don't have good Christian doctors who save people's eternal lives as well as their bodies. Um, but for me, uh, that's kind of the direction I ended up going in. And that's also connected with something that happened to me uh, at a youth service. Hmm. So my activity as a member of our youth group at church was also uh, very uh, formative for me. Uh, I had a friend I went to church with, uh, knew from grade school, Sunday school on, still my best friend today. Um, those things were very important for me, but we would uh, once a year have a service that was led by the youth group. And I got asked that year if I would do the message part. Hmm. So it was a lot of fun. I got to sit down with my pastor. Uh, you know, he would sort of ask me, well, what do you think? You know, here's your text. What do you want to say? And we worked through, uh, what, a, an adolescent sermon. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I, I remember getting up that day, uh, getting ready for church, thinking, you know, if just one person says, you ought to be a pastor, I think I'm really going to consider this. Wow. And uh, we had the service, uh, you know, 8 o'clock, 10.30, uh, got all kinds of compliments. And then finally, one guy that I'd never seen before, <laughs> never seen again, <laughs> walks out and says, that was really good you ought to think about becoming a pastor. And uh, wow. I thought, okay, well, I, I think I will. Now, I'm not trying to encourage people to look for signs and wonders or things like that, but the if you people around you know you well. Yeah. And if you've got good Christian people, people you, who've, you've trusted for your education and things like that, and they're encouraging you, listen to that encouragement and at least say okay, I want to consider this possibility. What would this mean for me? Whether it's pastor, missionary, teacher, deaconess, uh, there are all kinds of ways you can serve your Lord professionally. You can, of course, do it as a lay person, too. I have three children, uh, one son, he's not a pastor. Uh, none of my children are professional church workers, but they are all very devoted kingdom workers, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm very proud of them for that. Um, so I'm not saying feel guilty if you decide not to be, come to the seminary or be a church yeah, worker, yeah. but at least consider the possibility when people who know and love you are suggesting it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how I got here, uh, and you heard a little bit of the roundabout journey that brought me to this chair. Um, but as to your second question, what would I say? Uh, let's go back to the beginning and uh, think for a minute about George MacDonald. Now, he's mm. just one example. But one thing I would encourage uh, anyone considering coming to the seminary, or I would say even going to college or finishing college, going to graduate school, 
find a way to interact with good literature. Mm -hmm. That's just going to help you in all kinds of ways throughout your life. Uh, very few of us live lives that don't involve writing or working with words, speaking somehow. Uh, years ago, and I can't even remember now where I read it or who said it, but someone said, if you want to be a good writer, read a little poetry every day. Uh, I tried to do that for years, and then finally I thought, well, it doesn't have to be poetry, but you should read good writers. And MacDonald is one of those who yeah. also uh, has real worth, uh, mm -hmm. real content uh, in his writing. So that would be one thing I'd suggest. Um, my, just the story I just told you would uh, obviously lead to some other suggestions. Get to know your pastor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Pick his brain on things. Uh, don't just uh, think he's there for you, you know, an hour in church on Sunday or for a Bible class some other time. Uh, get to know him as a person. Uh, see what kind of life does this man live? Uh, what makes him feel like this is all worthwhile? Um, and uh, ask these same questions to other people you know and respect. Uh, ask your parents, how did they come to be? Uh, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever they're doing uh, for their uh, work to earn a living. Um, you know, so often we don't share those stories with each other, and then when it's too late to ask, we say, boy, I wish I would have sat down and heard that full story. I've just heard bits and pieces along the way. But, uh, but put together those stories of faith. They can be uh, very encouraging. And then finally, just one more thing, if we got a minute. Absolutely. Um, Keep wrestling with the word. Mm. Um, one of my uh, favorite pictures of what it's like to be an exegete <clears throat> is actually Jacob wrestling with the angel. Yeah. You fight all night. Uh, you know you're not going to win, um, but at least you have a chance to ask for some blessing. Mm -hmm. right? Uh, and uh, so wrestling with this word is just like that. Um, keep thinking about it. Uh, I was going to add at the end of our discussion of the parable, if you believe that this is God's inspired word, which we do here, then you would have to say the shape this word takes is his responsibility. Mm -hmm. Now, you've looked at other parables. I'm guessing probably something from Matthew 13. Uh, the sower, perhaps? Uh, well, or? yeah, we didn't do the sower. We, we got close to it in a past episode. Mm -hmm. but, but anyway, you right. know those parables. Right. Yeah. And you know that afterwards, the disciples come and they say, we have no idea what you just said. Can you explain this to us? Right. When you finish with this parable at the beginning of Luke 16, you can't help but say, why didn't we get one of those here? Right. <laughs> Am I comfortable? Am I completely at peace with this understanding of the parable? Not quite. I really wish there would have been that moment where Jesus would have said, this is what it's about. Yeah. This is what it means for you. But it was his choice that that didn't happen or at least didn't get recorded. Yeah. So why not? I think that's a question we need to be asking ourselves too. Why would Jesus speak such a challenging parable and then leave us to wrestle with it? Mm. Uh, and uh, I try to tell students who come to our Bible classes, 
This isn't the chance for me to give you the answer book. Mm. This is a chance for us to uh, learn to ask the right questions together and then have a lot of fun trying to figure them out. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, one of the things that people often ask me uh, is, is what is seminary about? And it is learning a ton of theology. But again, when we're talking about scripture and history together, uh, four years isn't enough. And for all of us, a lifetime isn't enough to master all of it if we're even able to master a portion. And so I often tell guys, you know, the, the thing I took away from seminary in my education was that when I get to difficult questions, I know at least where to look and who to ask for a good discussion and to come to some type of understanding, uh, which which goes beyond seminary. That should be applied to any field of academic study. It should be applied to all life. Is, is When you're in trouble, when you're looking for answers, who do you turn to? Uh, and ultimately, we should be turning to God, and but God has blessed us with the Holy Spirit as the body of Christ together uh, to wrestle with these things together. So I, I hope that this episode, as we conclude talking about parables, did a little bit of that for you, uh, just gave you something to wrestle with, uh, something to think about, and uh, this has been Under the Fig Tree. We, we appreciate you, Dr. Oswald, for joining us today. Uh, ben, any last thoughts? Great conversation. I just um, it's it's a it's a real pleasure to be a part of this podcast because I feel like I'm wrestling with the word in these, and uh, I always kind of go away a bit thinking, oh yeah, I got a little bit something out of that, and I want to think a little bit more about that. It's pretty good. Well, everyone, uh, thank you for joining us again. Take care and God bless. This has been under the fig tree.